ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, no evidence. Police pour cold water on reports an anti-Semitic phrase was chanted in a video of an infamous Sydney Opera House protest last year. Also, could we be headed for a federal election this year? The economic planets are aligning for Labor and its stage three tax cut gamble appears to be paying off. And a review reveals deep distrust in the community towards some renewable energy developers. There is no real negotiation because if they want the land, you've got compulsory acquisition sitting in the background. So you're negotiating with a gun to your head effectively. It's not a representative democracy because none of us asked for this. Thanks for your company. The organisers of a pro-Palestinian rally outside the Sydney Opera House last year have welcomed a finding that there's no evidence the phrase gas the Jews was chanted there, as was widely reported at the time. New South Wales police today declared that while there is clear evidence other anti-Semitic phrases were shouted by some rally goers, that most repugnant of phrases, which made international headlines, was not. Members of the Australian-Palestinian community are calling for an apology from politicians and media outlets that amplified the claim, but Jewish-Australian leaders say they want strong action taken over the other threatening things that were said. Here's Jacqueline Breen. In video from the night of the rally, below the glittering sails of an opera house lit in the blue and white colours of the Israeli flag, some protesters can be heard shouting at others, cut it out. One young man can be heard yelling F Israel in other footage. F the Jews is heard chanted by a group of mostly young men in another. But it was video that appeared to show chants of gas the Jews that stunned and outraged so many and became the key focus of the police investigation that followed. Nearly three months on, New South Wales Police Deputy Commissioner Mal Lanyon announced the findings of an investigation today. As a result of that examination... The expert has concluded with overwhelming certainty that the phrase chanted during that protest as recorded on the audio and visual files was where's the Jews? Not another phrase as otherwise widely reported. Police say it doesn't appear the video circulated online with subtitles reading gas the Jews was doctored, but the interpretation was incorrect. But that's not a conclusion that Alex Rivchin from the Executive Council of Australian Jewry is prepared to accept. What we saw on the steps of the Opera House on the 9th of October was a national shame. And the announcement by the police this morning changes little. We've all seen the video footage, we've heard the audio, and in addition to it, there are multiple statements, sworn statements given by eyewitnesses attesting to what was said on that day. But ultimately... The greater issue isn't whether it was gas the Jews or where's the Jews, F the Jews. Each phrase is as menacing and abhorrent as the next. The real issue here is that two days after the greatest atrocity inflicted on the Jewish people since the Holocaust, a group of Australians, a mob of thugs, gathered to burn flags, to release flares, 
and to menace and threaten their fellow Australians. Police say their investigations are continuing, but the council's former president, Gillian Siegel, is disappointed no one has been charged for any of those other actions on the night and is calling on the New South Wales government to make it happen by changing the law if necessary. It is absolutely uh, unacceptable that the particular community, the Jewish community, should have been subjected to something quite so awful and no action is able to be taken by our government. Organisers of the rally say today's announcement is vindication. There has been a smear campaign against Palestinians in this country to prevent us from calling for dignity, truth and justice for the security of Palestinian civilians by smearing us as anti-Semites or as people who are celebrating terror, and that could not be further from the truth. Organiser Fahad Ali condemned the anti-Semitic language that was used by some at the rally at the time and says it's drawn focus from the suffering of those in Gaza that the protests are seeking to highlight. Of course there's a problem when people are chanting anti-Semitic prejudicial things. That needs to be called out and condemned, which is what we as the organisers did. And all I can say is just to reaffirm that if you choose to promote hate and prejudice, you are not welcome in the Palestinian community because our focus is purely on the security of people in Gaza who are suffering under the most incredible violence. In the face of calls from the rally organisers for an apology, New South Wales Premier Chris Minns said in a statement today his views on what happened on the night of the protest haven't changed. And he said New South Wales laws about incitement to violence are under further review. For Deakin University politics and extremism expert Josh Roos, the time it took for police to investigate the claims and announce these findings is an issue. We've seen a hardening of the political position because of the provocative dimension of the allegation. I'm gas to Jews is about as bad as it gets. And so irrespective of whether or not it was, to allow that to hang in the wind for months Uh, really did contribute to a hardening on both sides of the debate. Today's announcement followed one by Victorian police yesterday who say they've confirmed the firebombing of a burger shop in the Melbourne suburb of Caulfield last year wasn't a hate crime as suspected by the store's pro-Palestinian owner. That incident sparked a rally that forced the evacuation of a nearby synagogue for which organisers apologised. Two men were arrested and have been charged with arson One of them has been refused bail. Jacqueline Breen reporting there. Could we be headed to a federal election later this year? As inflation comes down and possibly interest rates too later in the year, political watchers aren't ruling out the prospect of an early poll. The planets do appear to be aligning for the Labor government. Last night you heard the Greens leader on this program refusing to say whether he'd block Labor's stage three tax changes in Parliament. Today, opposition leader Peter Dutton was pressed on whether he'd stand in the way of the policy that puts more money in the pockets of nine out of ten taxpayers. Here he was speaking to Sarah Arbo on the Nine Network. Your own electorate is among those who are going to benefit greatly from these changes to the tax cuts, some 85% of them. You don't want to take money away from them, do you? And, and, and we're not going to. Uh, I've been very clear So you're about not going to stand that... in the way of these changes as a party? I've been very clear, very clear that the Liberal Party is the party of lower taxes. We always have been. We'll make our announcement, but we're going through uh, the numbers at the moment so that we get it right, and we'll make our announcement in due course. But I think at the moment people are rightly concentrating on the fact that the Prime Minister promised a position a hundred times, like he's doing on negative gearing at the moment, Mm. and then he turned around and broke it. A broken promise it was, but one Peter Dutton's apparently not 
prepared to say whether he'll stand in the way of. Philip Curry is the political editor of the Australian Financial Review. He joined me earlier. Phil Curry, thanks for being with us. The opposition of the Greens are still making a lot of noise about this broken promise. Just explain for people, though, why they're so reluctant to say they'll block it. It's what we call in politics a wedge. Yeah, it's, it's, the Greens will not vote against it um, because the Greens for two or three years have been railing against stage three as completely unfair and wanted it abolished. So I think it would be inconceivable if they were to stand on some high horse because they wanted to get something else out of the government and block this thing because stage three, the original package, David, has already been legislated. So the consequence of not letting Labor's legislation through as the original package uh, will begin on on July 1 as it stands. As for the coalition, it's trickier for them because this is their baby and basically Labor's asking them to kill their baby. It's a pretty significant reform uh, legacy from their last time in government. You know, the, the, they have already given the commitment that if this uh, Labor package passes, which it will, they're not going to revoke it at the next election, but it'll be the optics or the theatrics, if you like, when they vote in Parliament. I mean, this is the sort of weirdness of it. It won't actually matter whether they vote for it against it. It'll go through with or without them, but, well, Labor wants them to vote against it so Labor can run around and say, you don't like people on low income. So this is the current dilemma uh, the Coalition is facing on which way to jump. Yeah, it must be one of the more effective political wedges you've seen mm. in your time. A, a win for the government and, and quite an extraordinary turnaround, you'd have to say, from late last year mm. for Labor. What about, though, the, the broken promise? How yeah. dangerous is that for the government longer term? Well, this is the great unknown, Dave. I mean, what 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 Anthony Albanese has gambled on here, he and Jim Chalmers, is that self-interest will trump any any concern for integrity because it's it's a big broken promise. I mean, this is up there with, you know, no carbon tax and Tony Abbott's 2014 budget and the LAW law tax cuts. It's it's a good one, but the difference between this and the ones I just mentioned was this one actually benefits 87% of taxpayers because 87% of taxpayers will do better under this broken promise than they would have done under the already legislated stage three mm. tax cuts. So the government's you know hoping you know self-interest trumps, but the coalition is really wants to staple to their head you know the integrity issue mm. and um, and I think it's a fair enough line now given the numerous assurance Albanese and others. Gave they wouldn't touch this. That any further assurance they give going forward, you know, you just can't. Is worthless basically. Whether it's other tax concessions they might go after um, or anything else. So, yeah, you know, the, the tax cut itself will come in on July one. The the spectre of integrity will linger longer, but which one will outdo the other in terms of political impact, I think it's a bit early to tell. We also had pretty encouraging numbers on inflation Mm. this week. Are the planets, do you think, aligning for Labor and what could that mean for election timing? Look, look, they are, Dave, and and this is sort of, this was starting to become apparent, you know, last year when, you know, we're at the peak of the inflation and cost of living crisis and the bank was increasing interest rates and it was all fairly miserable. You know, those looking sort of through the curve, if you like, was, well, this has to, you know, what goes up comes down. And based on the inflation data we had this week, it looks like everything's going to sort of start coming down nicely in time for the next election, which has to be held by at the very latest, May 2025. But, you know, if the inflation number we saw on Wednesday, which we saw it falling faster than expected, if that continues and we've got economists, of which I'm not one, but people a lot smarter than me predicting it now, we may see interest rate cuts this you know, this year and, and more than one of them in the second half of the year. Uh, it means everything's starting to point the right way in terms of you know, the cost of everything coming down, mortgages coming down. And if Labor gets away with these tax cuts, um, 
You'd have to think they'd be tempted to go in an election mm. at the end of this year rather yeah. than wait until uh, May, May next year. A, a lot of voters don't like early elections, especially mm. if they get a whiff the government's kind of being tricky. Sure. Would that be playing on the PM's mind? Oh, that, that would look, yes, and at the moment his, his, his firm inclination is to go the full term. But, look, you, you know, you go when you can win, right? And that's always the rule. And, look, if they win in November, early December, it's not really that early. Mm. You know, it's not like a super early election going either then or in March next year, March, April, May. It's, it's early-ish, but I think you could... Look, if they manage to get away with the tax code excuse, they can probably they can probably make a, come up with a reason why they've got to go early too and uh, sort of ride what would you'd have to think be a, a wave of joy in the country. And, and also too, you have to, if interest rates do start coming down, which we hope they do, but that also means uh, that's a slowing of the economy and unemployment will start to rise and, and pretty soon the economy could, you know, sort of crunch to a standstill. So they need to politically they need to find the sweet spot between the start of the good news and, and the end result. Phil Curry, great to speak to you. Thank you. Pleasure, Dave. That's Philip Curry, the political editor of the Australian Financial Review. Well, an early election could be on the cards in Tasmania as well. It'd be its second early poll in three years if it happens. Liberal Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has issued an ultimatum to two balance of power wielding MPs, warning he'll go to the polls if they don't fall into line. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Just weeks ago, Tasmanian Independent MP John Tucker threatened to bring down Australia's last remaining Liberal government, unless it agreed to some new policy demands. Well, I like to say, tax back. And the Premier is on notice. Now, Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe is threatening to bring his minority government down himself by calling an early election. He's written to the two independent MPs who defected from the Liberals last year, John Tucker and Lara Alexander, with an ultimatum. Mr Rockliffe says they're holding the government to ransom and the only fix is for them to agree to never support opposition legislation, motions or amendments without the express permission of the government. Quite clearly, uh, the Tasmanian people deserve certainty and uh, the public statements by Mr Tucker and indeed uh, the fact that they were supporting uh, Labor on many occasions destabilising the parliament last year uh, is not what I want. I will not be, I will not be governing uh, with one hand tied behind uh, my back. One of those MPs, Lara Alexander, isn't having it. I'm not prepared to be uh, shackled. I'm not prepared for my voice to be taken away and I'm not prepared to be turned into Jeremy Rockliffe's lapdog. Opposition leader Rebecca White says bring it on. This is Jeremy Rockliffe's problem. He has to take responsibility. Political commentator Professor Richard Herr believes Premier Rockliffe's position is fair. The Premier's point is that both uh, she and John were elected as Liberals and when they left, they said they left for a defined set of issues. Now, if they wanted to be full independence with all the freedom that she would like to have, uh, then, of course, he may not have uh, accepted government in minority at all. He might have had to call an election early on. They gave him a reason to continue. When an election does happen, Tasmania's parliament will be expanded to house an extra 10 MPs, making it more likely independents will secure seats and making it difficult for either the Liberal or Labor parties to win majority government. Jackie Lambie's party is planning to run candidates and former Senator Eric Abetz is set to make his political comeback for the Liberal Party. He's already been pre-selected. Well, I don't know that the public necessarily 
necessarily want an election. There is no mood, apparent mood, for any party to have a majority. It was always going to be hard for the Liberal Party to try and seek a fourth term. But on the other side, Labour hasn't yet managed to generate the kind of landslide uh, support that would give them a majority. So all of the signs are leaning uh, leaning in the direction of a minority government. How risky of a move might calling an election be for Jeremy Rockliffe? It's risky, but if he calls it, it's because it is less risky than trying to govern in the present circumstances. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe wants the situation dealt with before state parliament returns early next month. Alexandra Humphreys. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Stay with us. A major bid to address youth crime and homelessness in Queensland. The transition to renewable energy is causing a lot of angst and anger in rural Australia as major projects like wind and solar and the transmission lines that connect them to the grid are cutting across thousands of properties. Now the federal government says it accepts the recommendations of a community engagement review, which has found a better job needs to be done of communicating how farmers will be affected and why. But there's concern that will do little to stop the so-called bad faith actors seeking to exploit local communities. Here's Nick Grimm. Grant Piper owns a grazing property in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales and he's incensed by plans to run high-capacity transmission lines to a nearby wind farm. We're affected by both, or will be if they go ahead and build. We've got compulsory acquisition letters for a section of our land for a power line to go across, and we're slated to have 250 metre turbines on the ridge west of us. He's one of hundreds of regional Australians opposing renewable energy projects across the nation. There is no real negotiation, because if they want the land, you've got compulsory acquisition sitting in the background, So you're negotiating with a gun to your head effectively and uh, your rights are taken away, the land value is taken away and all for something that's a harebrained scheme that isn't going to work and it's actually counterproductive. I mean, you're just, it's not negotiation. That's just browbeating, overbearing totalitarianism in my my view. It was fury like that which prompted the federal government to set up a community engagement review to establish guidelines for businesses pursuing those schemes. Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen today releasing the findings which call on government and business to do a better job of talking to local communities. And the government accepts in principle all the recommendations. And the minister acknowledges some renewable project developers haven't been doing the right thing. Like any industry, there are excellent proponents, excellent developers who engage genuinely and thoroughly with communities and with landholders, and there are those who need to do a lot better. And those who need to do a lot better also give the entire industry a bad name. While renewables have been credited with helping to bring down wholesale energy prices in Australia, their rollout has slowed in the past year to delays in commissioning large wind and solar farms. The head of the Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University, Bruce Mountain, says community opposition threatens the nation's transition to renewables. On top of that, there's enormous interest in developing wind and solar farm opportunities and proving them up. And so there are lots of businesses out there seeking options. Often those businesses are actually covering the same ground as others. And so local communities are quite heavily impacted by them. And confused by the sounds of it. 
Yes, the survey responses were absolutely remarkable. 80 to 90% no's and unhappies on, on the questions, you know, that they were asked. But Dan Cass, Executive Director of Rewiring Australia, also warns that Australia's cleaner, greener future is being threatened by those intent on sowing dissent. All observers have become incredibly concerned that there are bad faith actors and a very US Trumpian style lobby out there just trying to create division around renewables the way you would around any issue from Taylor Swift to the war in the Middle East. And I think Australians can come together around this energy transition and work on solutions to ensure that if transmission lines are going through a district that all the farmers are compensated properly and beyond the ones who host the infrastructure, the neighbours as well. Federal Independent MP Helen Haynes helped initiate and draw up the terms of reference for the review and she says the Albanese government now needs to put its money where its mouth is to ensure those bad elements are rooted out. And it's clear from the report how much people are seeking, desperately seeking to have better engagement. So what now? Yeah, so I guess I want the government now to get this in the budget to make sure that there is sufficient money uh, to implement these recommendations and I want this top of the agenda at National Cabinet when the energy ministers come together because critically this kind of work needs to happen right across our states and territories. That's independent MP Helen Haynes ending Nick Grimm's report. We've brought you a lot of stories about youth crime on this program recently, particularly in Northern Australia. Well, now Queensland is offering what it hopes could be part of a solution, a program that helps people experiencing homelessness for the first time, including young people, has been given a major boost and will be rolled out at eight new sites across the state. Isabel Masali has the details. Caitlin had just turned 17 when she entered a youth housing facility in Logan, south of Brisbane. She says it didn't just mean a roof over her head. It meant getting her life back on track with a helping hand. So for me, I didn't have my birth certificate. I didn't really have any IDs. I didn't have my bank logins. I My Centrelink at the time was actually completely messed around. Like I needed help fixing everything. Like it can be so overwhelming and challenging trying to pick up all the pieces you've lost along the way. After experiencing homelessness and addiction for a while, Caitlin says she was initially uncertain about the program known as Youth Foyer. But seven months on, she's pretty proud to secure her first job. It actually felt like the first step into moving forward and actually becoming like a person again and living a normal life. (laughs) With the program now and, and your life now, how do you feel about the future? I feel like I actually have one. In Queensland, youth foyers are already in place in Logan and on the Gold Coast, with a 40-bed facility opening soon in Townsville. But today, Housing Minister Megan Scanlon announced another eight facilities across the state. She says the supported accommodation is for those aged 16 to 25. It has that sort of wraparound support, so uh, there are often you know, youth workers and people who live on site who can provide that extra assistance. You know, when you think about it, when you're you know, 16 years old, there's you generally have your parents or caregivers who are looking out for you and in some cases that's not the case. The first facility opened more than 10 years ago. Foyer Foundation CEO Liz Cameron-Smith says since then demand has grown. 
She believes this program works to break the cycle of homelessness and disadvantage. There's currently 16 youth foyers across Australia and we have a really solid evidence base that shows that youth foyers get results. So we know that on exit, young people are 60% less likely to enter the justice system. 80% of them end up with safe and secure housing and 65% have decent and secure work. She's welcomed today's announcement in Queensland but would like to see more support from governments across the country. Well, the Western Australian government has also committed to the biggest foyer in Australia, a 98-bed foyer in Perth, but we know that there's more demand. The Northern Territory is the only state and territory that does not yet have a youth foyer, but we know that there is huge demand for this, including in Alice Springs, where we've all seen what happens when young people in the community are not offered the right supports. University of New South Wales criminology professor Eileen Baldry says housing insecurity can impact a person's life in various ways. She studied prisoners in her state and found eight factors that increase your risk of entering the criminal justice system. Just being homeless doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be caught up. You add to that having been in out-of-home care, you add to that getting caught up in drugs and alcohol early, early, each of those added to that. We have shown quite clearly these things then create a determinating situation and context for those young people. But she cautions housing can be the key as long as what's provided is appropriate for that person. So for Aboriginal kids, it needs to be culturally appropriate. For kids with disability, there needs to be disability support. So all of those things coalescing provide a much better platform, a much better potential for those young people to move into a life that is not defined by criminal legal processes and isn't defined by disadvantage and poverty. That's Professor Eileen Baldry ending that report by Isabel Masali. As the war in the Middle East continues, the US President Joe Biden's slapped sanctions on four Israeli settlers accused of violent attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. They won't be able to travel to the States nor access any assets held there. The announcement came just hours before the President was on the campaign trail in Michigan, a battleground state in this year's election where he needs the support of Arab Americans. This report from Samantha Donovan. As Joe Biden visited Michigan, protesters greeted his motorcade, waving Palestinian flags and chanting, Genocide Joe has got to go. Among them was young mother, Noor Abraham. 10,000 dead babies are on his hands. And I'm here with my two children, you know, in solidarity with those kids. 23-year-old Adam Upsala was also there. We're, uh, you know, disgusted by how the Biden administration is handling the situation. But down the road in Warren, Michigan, Joe Biden received an enthusiastic response from members of the United Auto Workers Union. Sean Fain is the union president. You know what the hell is going to happen if this man's not president because we've seen what happened. Working class people went backwards, the poor went backwards, everybody suffered. We're going to fight like hell and we're going to ensure that Joe Biden's the next president so that the working class keeps moving forward. The president moved around the room, shaking workers' hands. You know, Wall Street didn't build the middle class. Labor built the middle class. 
and the middle class built the country. And when labor does well, everybody does well. Bruce Wolpe is a senior fellow at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney and a former advisor to the Democratic Party. He says Arab Americans and unions are crucial groups for Joe Biden to win over if he's to be re-elected. Arab American voters are very prominent in Michigan. They are also prominent in Georgia and Arizona. Uh, in Michigan, of Arab American voters outnumber the margin by which Biden carried Michigan. It's not a question that they switch and vote for Donald Trump because Donald Trump is perceived as so anti-Muslim. The question is whether they will turn out. How is the union vote looking? My recollection is that back in 2016, quite a number of unions that would normally vote Democrat switch support to Trump. Are they flipping back to Biden or is it still a pretty even race? I think they are flipping back to Biden. Uh, Biden is the first president in U.S. history to join a picket line. He was doing so when the automobile workers were on strike. Core industry, core union. And so they know where he stands and they know where, where the difference is as to where Trump stands. Yes, Trump supports blue-collar workers. There's no question about that. But who does it more effectively and more consistently? And I think the judgment is being reached that yeah, it's Joe Biden. He's our guy. And we want to stick with him in November. The support of Arab American voters and union members may matter less if pop superstar Taylor Swift comes out and endorses <laughs> President Biden. Bruce, can you tell us the the latest state of play there? What's the debate uh, and the feeling about that in the U.S.? I, I think everyone is watching this with fascination. And the whole issue of who's going to win in November has to do with turnout. And uh, uh, Donald Trump has high amp turnout from his base. The, the worry with Joe Biden is, does he, the Democratic constituencies who have supported him in the past, like Arab American voters, will they come, will they, will black voters, union voters, will they come out in sufficient numbers to see him through, but particularly young voters who um, have real problems voting for a man as, as old as Biden in the election? Taylor Swift helps bridge that equation. We'll see ultimately what she does which decides how she leads but um and i think and i believe uh the white house and president biden are courting her and we will see whether that bears fruit down the road <laughs> the tay tay factor bruce wolpe there from the u.s study center in sydney he was speaking to our reporter samantha donovan that's all we've got time for this week pm's producer is michael edwards technical production by lena elsardi david Sargent, joram toth i'm david lipson have a great weekend